From the digital team here at savannahnow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Bremer, and joining me on this Difference Makers episode is Mary Jane Crouch, the executive director of what is a lifeline during this coronavirus pandemic, America's second harvest of coastal Georgia, our area's largest food bank. Difference Makers is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. in February to 4.2% in March, and the April change will undoubtedly dwarf that. The coronavirus pandemic and the economic shutdown is to blame, of course, and with the rise in joblessness has come increased demand for food assistance. The backstop for Savannah and coastal Georgia is America's Second Harvest, a food bank that serves a 21-county area. And let's just say they've been busy, as you'll soon hear from today's Difference Maker, Second Harvest Executive Director Mary Jane Crouch. But first, a little background on this podcast series. Difference Makers launched in 2018 and features the men and women who are making a difference in the Savannah community. They hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. You probably recognize the names or at least organizations that these Difference Makers represent. This podcast is a chance to learn what makes them successful. Thank you for listening and enjoy this interview with Second Harvest, Mary Jane Crouch. to be joined on this episode of Difference Makers by someone who herself and her organization are making a tremendous difference in our community right now. And that's Mary Jane Crouch with America's Second Harvest of Coastal Georgia, of course, with the coronavirus doing its best to make life difficult here and around the country. America's Second Harvest has really had to step up its game in terms of serving the community and serving so many people who are hungry and a lot of new people from what I understand as well, Mary Jane. But before we really dive into the current situation, we always start these difference makers by getting to know the difference maker a little bit better. And we'll also talk quite a bit about America's second harvest to let the people know about uh, the background there. But but let's start with you. I, I know that, that you like me are a longtime Savannian, but will never be a true Savannian. Can you kind of walk us through your background? Uh, well, I actually grew up in um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then moved out to the Bay Area, San Francisco. Um, and we moved here about 20 years ago. So we've, as you said, we've been here a long time, but I know I wasn't born and raised here. My children were raised here, um, and they will tell you they're from Savannah. But um, obviously, we are all from other parts of the country, but we feel like Savannah's home, um, and we absolutely love Savannah. Growing up in Charlotte, what, uh, what were you into? Arts, sports, books, uh, all of the above? Uh, Actually, I kind of grew up out in the country, so we were into um, doing things out in the country like fishing and um, had dogs and things like that, loved to be outside. I grew up very much with four brothers, so grew up with a a whole ability of having tomboys and doing the things that you need to do. uh, it was great. Um, it was it was not a farm, but we actually did have a big garden, so we did that whole routine of doing that, and it was nice. Um, we did a lot of different family things, very very much into our church and everything growing up. So we we really and truly had the the truly background country living growing up, which was really nice. We were right outside of Charlotte, um, and so we had Charlotte to go to for dinner and different things, but we also had you know the country life when we wanted it. 
So four siblings, all brothers. Were you somewhere a middle child or were you older? Were you younger? Um, I always laugh because I actually was the youngest child, and I always tell my parents that it took them that long to get it right. Um, so <laughs> I'm not sure that they're always thrilled about that, but um, but I always say that. And I actually also had three sisters, um, oh, okay. so I wow. was actually the youngest of eight children. Um, oh. I had four brothers, which I really kind of hung around with, and three sisters also. But um, I was the youngest of all eight, so it was really kind of interesting that you know the older ones always thought I got everything, and you know the I always thought no, I just you know it. Was was just there. So it was yeah. kind of interesting to grow up that way. When I talk to people who are, who are the babies in big families, they always talk about um, just kind of the relationships and, and their relationships with their siblings because of the wide range of age is always a little different than maybe a more traditional experience. What was it like? Uh, what was it like in your family? Well, I mean, my oldest brother was 16 when I was born, so there was a huge age difference. Um, and so, you know, I will be honest, before I can even remember, he was gone. Um, but we grew up with, you know, they they all came back after they went away to college and went away to um, military service and different things. We all came back, and we pretty much all were in the Savannah, um, not Savannah, I'm sorry, see, I think I'm in Savannah. We were all in the Charlotte area within like an hour drive of each other, so we spent a lot of time. Um, getting together, we would get together at my parents' house, you know, on Sunday afternoons and have the outdoor baseball games and the outdoor football games in the winter. And so we grew up as a very, very close-knit family. Um, and so I really was kind of a, about the first one that moved so far away when I moved to San Francisco. Yeah, so that was a big news. difference for the family. Uh, and, it, and it did make a difference. But, you know, my kids really loved being out in California and learning all about that. It was a different a different atmosphere than being in the South because it was, as everyone knows now, California is very different. Um, but back even then, it was a little different that they didn't have um, things that we don't didn't have here. They had there. It's really funny when we would come home. We would always take boxes of grits and Duke's mayonnaise with us because they didn't sell those in San Francisco at that time. Um, and we would literally bring an extra empty suitcase so we could take back our boxes of things that we needed to eat out in San Francisco. Well, I'm with you on the Duke's mayonnaise, not so much the grits, but yeah, Duke's is, <laughs> Duke's is something special. Um, Blue collar family, white collar family. What, what did your parents do? Uh, my father was an architect um, and had his own had a construction company. Um, okay. And my mother worked in the construction company as the bookkeeper. Uh, okay. So it was a family owned business. Family business. Um, they actually built the very first McDonald's in Charlotte. Not. Wow. Not didn't own it, but they built it because they owned a construction company. So they built the first little McDonald's that was built in the Charlotte area that many years ago, if, if you can imagine. Um, so that's kind of something that was always fun. Um, and so grew up that way, you know, and a lot of my brothers went into the construction industry and stayed in that, um, which was, you know, which was nice. They stayed in the family business and everything. I was kind of the one that broke out when I got out of college. I went into the airline industry and worked okay. for Eastern Airlines for a number of years um, and was a sales rep for Eastern Airlines, moved to Washington, D.C. for a few years and lived up there and worked there, um, left Washington and went to Miami and then Atlanta and back to Charlotte. So I lived all around with, you know, when you work with an airline, you kind of tend to live all over the place. So it was right. really nice, did a lot of traveling, um, was young, didn't, wasn't married at that point, so got to do a lot of traveling and getting out and everything. When you went to San Francisco, were you married at that point? 
I was. Um, I was, and I actually worked for Alaska Airlines when I went out there. I was a station uh, manager for Alaska Airlines out in San Francisco. So, um, so then moved back here. So you move here. Your entire professional experience is, is sales, airline related. How did you get to helping nonprofits and leading and, and doing what you're doing now? Well, I actually, um, the way I really got to Second Harvest is that um, when back in, I guess it was 2002, um, I had done the auction for this school that my children went to um, for several years. And one of the parents said, you know, we're looking for some help to do a capital campaign for the food bank. And she said, would you be willing to come and help us for, you know, like six weeks and just help us kick off this capital campaign? You're really good at raising money and everything like that. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was volunteering for the school. So I wasn't, you know, doing anything else except volunteering. And she said, no, we really want to hire you. And I was like, yeah, you know, I really, the kids are young. I'd, I'd rather work, you know, just part time. So I did. And I said, I'll do this for like six weeks. And that was 2002, and I'm still here, if that tells you anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the passion bit. That, that's what it was, was you got in there and saw the difference that you were making, and it just, the light bulb went off? Well, you, I, you got in and you saw what needed to be done, and you saw the people in need. And, you know, I, I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen the child that wasn't going to eat tonight. And, you know, I always laugh until my aha moment was I was here one afternoon, and a woman came in and said, I don't need food for myself, but my kids don't have anything to eat tonight. And I was like, really? And she said, I, we don't have any food and I don't have any money. Can you just give me something for them to eat? I don't, I don't have to eat. I'm okay. And I thought, you know what? This is, this is here. This is in Savannah. This is in our community. And this is not acceptable. And that really was my aha moment that, you know what? No child and no parent should have to worry about where they're going to get their next meal from. And I, I think from that moment on, it was just, you know what? we got to make sure everyone in our community has access to food, and we've got to make sure that no child has to stress over where they're going to get their next meal. And it, it really, I mean, at that moment on, it was like, I'm here, and I, you, we've got to make this happen. And that's a good segue into talking about America's Second Harvest and Feeding America and the whole roots of that. So it was already it was already here in Savannah twenty years ago. Can you kind of talk about the the what Second Harvest kind of grew out of here and and what what it means for the community? Sure. Uh, Second Harvest actually was started back in 1981, and it literally was started out of the back of a pickup truck. Um, grocery store owners and some different people in the community said, you know, we're throwing all this food away. We, we should not be throwing food away every day. Um, and so they would literally go around to the various grocery stores and places and pick up food from restaurants and from different uh, caterers, and they would take it to community centers and churches and places and faith-based organizations where they could drop it off that they knew people in the community could come get it. And that is really and truly how we started. And then they got space it um, in a basement of a high school that they could bring the food in and they could bring not just non-perishable, they could bring canned items that were dented and different things. Um, and they started there. And then, you know, after that, they, they purchased a building over on Carolyn Street um, and had a small, like a about a 5,000 square foot building um, that they did that out of. And then when I joined was when they bought the building that we're in now, which is on President Street. Um, And so I was brought in to help raise the funding to be able to pay for this building over on President Street. Um, And so we've grown. We've actually added a couple extra buildings and we've added a community kitchen where we prepare those meals for the children every day. 
So we actually are now probably around 70,000 square feet, and we, and, that, and we do have a kitchen here, and then we have a branch in the Brunswick area that's about a 5,000-square-foot branch. And it's, it's through the dedication of an unbelievable, you cannot imagine, unbelievable board of directors that we have. They are so phenomenal, and they are so passionate about what we do. And, and our staff, you know, they really get it. I mean, you, you always laugh, and you can see that light bulb go off when they see what really happens at the food bank. And a lot of people look at us as, you know, a pantry or something. And it's funny because I had someone in a relatively high position come for a a tour one day and they came in and I showed them around and they were like, I thought you were like a one room organization. And I said, no, you know, we provide the food for over 285 organizations in coastal Georgia so that they can have their feeding programs, different shelters, different faith-based organizations, all the backpack programs. We do the food for the backpack programs. Um, You know, we do programs where we do our mobile food pantries. All sorts of different kinds of organizations come to us to get their food, um, to make sure that they can feed the people around them and for their programs so that they're not having to go out and buy the food at grocery stores so that they can save that money and everything. So we've grown. Um, when I joined right. the food bank, we were distributing about three or four million pounds of food. And this past year, we distributed 19 million pounds of food. Wow. The Difference Makers podcast is a great way to learn about Savannah and those who make the city tick. But there's a catch, of course, the two-week wait between episodes. Keep up with all that's going on in our town on a more regular basis by signing up for our free newsletters. We deliver an opinion page newsletter daily, and our news team does likewise. And for the foodies and Georgia Southern fans among the audience, weekly newsletters on those topics are available as well. Visit savannahnow.com slash newsletters now to get those newsletters delivered straight to your email inbox. Again, that's savannahnow.com slash newsletters. So let's, let's pull the curtain back a little bit more. You go from, from basically picking up food in the trunk of a car to what you are today. Is it just as, it, as things grew, more people of influence became involved, and then you needed to, I assume then you had to start worrying about distribution you had to worry about okay we got to do some we got to do some grants in order to raise some money to buy some food we've got to have a lot of coordination in terms of of collecting food and pushing for donations and i know that like the mail carriers do a do a food collection thing for you all too so where does where does that 19 million pounds what is all what all happens behind the scenes to make that happen well, as I said, we have an unbelievable staff here. They are phenomenal. And the good news is, is they are great at logistics. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, if you aren't, if you aren't into logistics and like this truck has to go here and on the way going there, he can stop here and pick this up and drop this off. And we have a great logistics team that coordinates all of that. And they are phenomenal at doing that. Um, and so, I mean, seriously, you know, a lot of that has comes from writing grants, community support, um, you know, a lot has grown, and a lot has grown, and people go, is the hunger problem more prevalent? And what we like to think is we are reaching more people, so maybe they aren't hungry. Yes, poverty has grown as our community has grown, but also we, we like and we hope that, you know, we're actually making a difference in making sure that more people have food. You know, our Kids Cafe program has grown tremendously. When we first started it um, back in 1989, we were serving around 100 to 200 children a day, and now we're 
serving like 4,000 a day. Um, and all that food is prepared over in our community kitchen, Grace's Kitchen, um, named after one of the people that helped found Kids Cafes. So, you know, it, it's grown and it's grown because of the need, but it's, it's grown also because we're trying to meet that need more. You have people that do some cooking in the kitchen. I know you also have volunteers that come and help uh, sort food and box up food. Can you kind of talk about the many hands that go into, into what you do? Well, we actually use the equivalent of probably about 22 full-time people and hours in volunteer hours each year. So if we didn't have volunteers, we'd have to go out and hire probably about 22 more people. And they do everything. They are in the kitchen actually preparing the meals. They're helping put the meals on the trucks. They're packing boxes to go out on the emergency mobile food pantries. They're packing breakfasts that we can send out to children through our grab-and-go programs. They're doing... Um, they're pa- they're packing backpacks that go out to children on the weekends. They're sorting the food that comes in from food drives. Um, they're working in the warehouse to help make sure that, you know, we have to go through the produce and pick out anything that's not good that's donated to us. So they're doing a variety of things. I mean, we do have staff, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. those volunteers, their hands, you know, especially, you know, this week is National Volunteer Week, and absolutely positively we could not do what we do without the volunteers. And, you know, United Way is awesome to send us volunteers. They help us with that when we're in a need. They can put out a call and get a group in to help us. So they are great partners helping us with this program. Since you've got a captive audience here, if people are interested in volunteering, do they do they reach out to you? Do they reach out to United Way? What's the best way to, to reach out? They can reach directly out to us. We actually have a, uh, a volunteer site on our website, um, and they can just reach out directly to us, or they can go to United Way. United Way is probably pretty busy right now with their 211, yes. so they can reach out to us. We are Right now, we're, we are being very careful about our volunteers. We are starting to bring them back in in small groups, groups of like seven or less because we have to have the social distancing and we have to have, make sure there's, you know, that we don't have too many people in the building at one time. So we're being very, and I, when I say selective, we're being selective in numbers of sure. people that can come in. So we're asking people not to just show up, to literally go on our website and send us an email or call us and our volunteer uh, coordinators numbers on that website. They can go in and, and request and then we call and if they've got a group of five or seven, then we'll bring them in. If there are one, we need to make sure we can put them with another group that won't overnumber that group, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, right now we're, we're just having to be very, very careful um, to make sure that we don't have more than 10 people in different places and things. So we're just working really hard on that. Yeah, I can imagine. But when the future, when all of this ends and we're back to daylight and everything's normal and sunny, you know, we take volunteers, you know, six days out of the week. We do volunteers Monday through Saturday um, all during the day, and we do two or three evenings a week. So we're always excited to have our volunteers. Right, right. We're going to shift to talking about coronavirus-related impact here in a second, but and we can kind of go that direction with this question, but we were talking before I hit the record button a little bit about uh, buying the food, collecting the food, what you usually spend in a year to buy food, and what is really going on now uh, in terms of making sure you have enough food to supply to folks. Can you kind of walk us through uh, what you usually spend in an average year and, and how that's kind of been thrown out of the window the last month or so? 
Well, we usually spend about $1.5 million in food in a year, um, and that helps with our Kids Cafe program as well as our backpack programs. It may be a little bit more than 1.5, depending on, you know, what we have to buy and how, how large our programs get during the summer and everything for feeding children. Right now, we're looking that with this, we'll probably spend close to a million dollars in food purchases. Um, we are out buying tractor-trailer loads of rice and things like that that we've never had to buy in the past um, because that food supply chain has really been hampered by uh, everything that's going on in the market. And we know it'll straighten out and we know we'll start, but right now we've got to make sure we have the food to be able to feed people. Um, you know, we normally keep around 10,000 emergency boxes of food ready in case there's a disaster or a hurricane or something like that. And, you know, we were talking yesterday, we were down to 1,600 boxes of food because we've been putting the food out so much. So we're okay. We've got groups coming in. We've got different people coming in this week. Um, we'll be back up. Our goal is to be back up so that we make sure, you know, we're keeping that going. Um, but, you know, we've got to buy that food to put in those boxes now because we're not getting as many donations. And the orders that we're placing now, a lot of them for some of the food that we're getting in, um, is the, the, the orders aren't arriving until June. So we've been really careful with what we're doing. We've got a lot of things that are coming in every day. Um, and we're, you know, we're buying from a multitude of sources. But the reason it is, you know, normally when we have some type of disaster, like if we have a hurricane or something, all of the other food banks across the country, and there's 200 that are affiliates of Feeding America, you know, we all step in and help. You know, if last year, a couple of years ago, there was a problem in Charleston when they got hit, you know, with what one of the hurricanes went through there. We sent one of our trucks and a driver and a truckload of food up there. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't help us. They've got to help their community right now. So we're all struggling to try to find that food, and we're all trying to use our buying power as an entire nation to go out and buy that food. So that's helping being an affiliate of Feeding America truly is making sure that we can have the food to be able to provide for our community. And we are talking to other food banks like, you know, if if we've got an abundance of something in our area and they have an abundance of something in sure. their area, can we trade it? So, you know, everyone in our area is not just getting onions and we love onions, but you know what? Maybe you've got peaches in some other area. You'll give me some peaches. I'll give you some onions. So we're all working together. And that's what the part of the, the power of Feeding America really and truly is, is making sure that, you know, we are united and, and that we can make this happen for everyone in our nation. Let's drill down on that food supply chain. So you're basically tapping wholesalers, supermarkets that have surpluses. Usually they will they will donate surpluses or how exactly does it work that, that you that you get? They do. Normally we get lots and lots of donations. Um, and normally, you know, it comes from food manufacturer. It comes from, okay. you know, farmers. It comes from all sorts of places. So right now a lot is being challenged because they're trying to meet the needs of the retail stores. And and rightly so. I mean, you know, that's how they're going to make their money is by, you know, selling it to a retail store instead of, you know, donating it to a food bank. So that's why we're going out and purchasing a lot of food right now because we can't wait for this to slow down. We've got to make sure we have the food right now. So, you know, that's why we've been doing a lot of writing of grants, a lot of um, different things, making phone calls um, and asking people to help us with things. So, you know, we are we recognize that this, too, shall pass and we shall be okay. uh, But we need to make sure that we meet that need right now while it is there and while our community is really and truly in need. We want to make sure that we are the resource for food and people don't have to worry about that. That brings up an interesting 
question, I guess. And that's the whole disconnect that, that seems to be happening in, in some instances right now. And maybe it's being overblown or the whole story isn't being told, but that there are some farmers and some others that are basically, you know, dumping their crop or, or not turning in their crop because of, of market pressures. How much of that could be coordinated to, to maybe, or how much of that is and how much maybe more could be coordinated to help with food banks and some of the other things? We are not seeing that with our farmers in our okay. area. I'm just going to be honest with you. Sure. I know in bigger cities and bigger areas, but right now, um, and I can't quote the act, USDA has just done some stuff with that oh, to good. be able to start recruiting that. Uh, today, one of our publics announced that they're going to start doing, um, they're buying the fresh uh, the produce and they're going to buy gallons of milk and they're going to start giving them out to food banks all around their territory right. in America's and US um, the USDA is they're working to buy produce boxes that have been put together that will be able to start giving fresh produce and we do not know when that will happen this has just been announced this week so mm-hmm. I know that there are a lot of people at a much higher level than I am that are <laughs> going to be working on trying to make sure this is not happening um, and so I know that's all going on right now. Like, I think this past week I heard something about Dole was giving out truckloads of produce in the areas where their fresh produce is. Um, And so they're giving it to food banks so we can make sure we get it out to the people. So I do know that it is is in the works. USDA has been phenomenal in working on all of this to make sure that people are in need. Um, The CARES Act has given a lot of latitude for the USDA to be out and go and do that to not only help the farmer, but to help the food bank that can then help the people in need. So I do know all that is in the works. Um, To tell you what day that's going to actually start happening, I can't tell you. Um, I can just tell you that I know that there are, as I said, people that are working on it, and I feel confident that that will be something that will happen relatively fast. Yeah, that's good to know because that was, uh, I think that's a head scratcher for a lot of people. And and like uh, like I was saying earlier, I think some of it maybe happens in one place and it blows up in the way the as connected as we are in the world now it just kind of kind of builds on each other and all of a sudden it maybe it becomes uh, a little overblown or a little exaggerated but yeah and to, that, and to be per- yeah and to be perfectly honest we're getting donations from our farmers in our area so right. you know we we've, we've been up picking up things from farmers in our area so i don't necessarily think that it's it's really and truly going to be our farmers as much as it's probably more in like the bigger like you know florida has so much and things like that so i mean you know i can only guess you know they're not that we don't have really big farms here but Mm -hmm. i don't know that right now is their biggest growing season if that makes sense right well that's good to know We are speaking with America's second harvest of Coastal Georgia's Mary Jane Crouch on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of your propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now, back to Mary Jane Crouch. Talk about what kind of trends you're seeing. I mean, obviously, this crisis is is unlike anything we've ever seen. Unemployment rate is skyrocketing. Uh, a lot of people that 
a lot of people that probably never would have, have considered reaching out to a food bank for food or are now doing it. Uh, how is that changing things? What are you seeing along those lines? Well, the people we're talking to in the line when they're coming to our mass distributions are people that that's what they tell us is, I'm so embarrassed. You know, I used to do food drives for you, and I promise I will again in the future. Or I've always donated to you, and I promise I will in the future. But right now, you know, my spouse lost their job, or I lost my job, or, you know, I worked in a hotel and the hotel's closed, or I worked in a restaurant and the restaurant's closed. And so, uh, you know, the the unfortunate piece of that is that, you know, yes, we want to help and we want to make sure we're getting that. But the unfortunate piece is, is that, you know, they they need it right now. And, you know, I know that unemployment comes and things like that, but, you know, it it's not there tonight for my child to eat. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we step in. And that's where we need to be that difference, that we are there that night to make sure that that person gets to eat and they don't go to bed hungry. And that senior citizen and people immediately go, well, I mean, why, why senior citizens? They may not be working anyway, but, you know, they, you know, they may be that same person that used to go to the grocery store and buy the off labels. And now they go to the grocery mm-hmm. store and there's nothing to buy. So, you know, they're really struggling to put food on the table also. So we're just, you know, all of those people and, you know, the stories of the parents that, you know, and, you know, we get so many nice notes from people that that are are helping us financially that are like, you know, thank you. You know, I, as I, you know, told you the earlier story, we got a note from a woman today that said, I'm still working. Here's my stim, here's the money from my stimulus check. You know, I didn't need it. And I know you all are doing a lot. Help some more people. And, you know, those stories, you know, it's really heartwarming when you know that people are stepping up to help their neighbors and they really and truly recognize it. And you don't know who it is. I mean, you even think about, you know, the person that the doctor that used to do elective surgery and they're not doing any surgeries now because they've all been canceled across the state. And you think, oh, but, you know, but every person at every level has been impacted by this. You mentioned newly unemployed and and that kind of snowballs on itself in, in many ways. I mean, schools are out which uh, the school system is is still delivering breakfast and lunch to a lot of children but i take it that that those kids that are that are don't have that automatic school resource anymore those parents especially the ones that are newly unemployed those those families are coming to you more now Yes, they are. Um, you know, the school system, the Savannah Chatham school system and the school system around us are doing great jobs with the buses and dropping food off at the bus stops and things like that. And, you know, we're doing our grab and go lunches and we're trying to, and we have been working with the school systems to say, all right, if you're going here, let us go here, which is not in the same neighborhood. So we can make sure we're touching all of those children. So we're actually doing what we call grab and go breakfasts also. So, so we're making sure we work with them on that because a lot of the parents, you know, they're not working and they counted on the school lunches and they counted on that paycheck and both are gone right now. So if we can make sure that the children have access to food, I mean, they've still got to study and they've still got to do their homework and they, they, we don't want them to get academically behind and we want to make sure they have health, access to healthy food. So we all together need to be working and, and we've said this a thousand times together we got this. We've got it. Together we can do it and that's what we always talk about here is, you know, 
know, we, we're going to work with the school systems. We're going to work with United Way. We're going to work with Salvation Army and all of those other organizations out there that really and truly, um, and the hospitals, you know, anything we can do to support them. You know, they're working long hours. We need to make sure we've got food. We've done some unique things with, you know, with the police departments to make sure the police departments, when they see a you know, homebound person that can't get out to get food, let's give them some boxes of food. And they're, you know, they're keeping them. And then when an officer sees someone that they are really worried that's at risk for hunger, they can give them a box of food. So we're working, we're trying to come up with new and, you know, creative ideas. You know, we always laugh and say, think out of the box. And no, we, there's no box right now. We just need to think, how are we going to get this food out to the person that needs it? You know, just to make sure that that's one less stress they have to worry about. Right. So it's it's easy to get kind of caught in that bunker during a, the time of, of crisis. But I have a feeling that between all the resources you have nationally and otherwise that they're starting to roll out some some guidance, some statistics, some things that you should expect going forward of how the coronavirus is going to change what you do and how you do it. Uh, can you share what what's being shared with you? Well, you know, some statistics I got today, um, which were really interesting to me, were on the state-level estimates of unemployment. Um, so currently, um, in 2018, we thought that the un- the food insecurity rate in Georgia, for all of Georgia, was a 12.5%. And if our unemployment rate goes up in Georgia 1.1%, 1.1%, we will have an additional 105,000 people that will be living below poverty. And, wow. and that is all of Georgia. But then if it goes up to, if it goes up 4.5%, we'll have 318,000 more people in Georgia that will be below the poverty level. And if it goes up 7.6%, which is not unreasonable right now to think that it's going to go up, mm-hmm. there will be an additional 551,000 people in Georgia that live below the poverty level. I mean, that's a half a million people that will need help getting food, will need help with electrical things, will need help with all sorts of things just here in Georgia. And that doesn't count, you know, the whole United States when you look at look at the big numbers. You know, those are big numbers of the percentage of change. I know since the start of this emergency, you've been tracking your numbers. Uh, how many households have you served in, in the last month? And what what kind of change is that from, lack of a better word, normal times? Well, you know, since March 23rd, when we really and truly realized that there were going to be some really layoffs and some major things going on in our 21 county counties that we serve in coastal Georgia, we have provided emergency food boxes and emergency food programs to 21,179 households. So that's that's not even through our agencies and through our grab-and-go breakfasts. That's just the different people that have gone through the lines at our mobile food pantries, 21,179 households. And each household has received an average of about 70 pounds of food. So that's about one point. Four million pounds of food that we've provided in just since March 23rd. And we usually do around, through that program, our mobile food pantry program, we usually do around three, maybe three and a half million pounds a year. So we've already done 1.4. As of last Friday, we've done 1.4 just in less than a month. We've already provided that much through that program. So that just tells you, you know, how much, you know, how much food we are pushing out. Um, That's the equivalent of about 1.2 million meals that we've provided just 
blessed in that short period of time through that one program. Um, you know, and then we're doing our grab-and-go breakfast and lunch that we're doing out at 36 different places for children where they literally can drive through and pick up lunch and breakfast for the next day. Um, and we've done over we've done 71,827 breakfast and lunches that we've been able to send out to kids in coastal Georgia to make sure they have food while the school systems are closed. And the school right. system's doing a great job on that also. I cannot begin to tell you what a great job they have really and truly stepped up with the bus stops and making sure the children can get it. And we've we've picked the places where they aren't so that we can make sure all children are served. In addition to that, you're also supplying food for how many other organizations? 200-something? We do around 285 other nonprofit organizations that come to us to get their food. Well, remarkable job. Thanks so much for what you do in this community. And I hope uh, people that hear this, that if they need food, they're going to they're gonna come and see you. And if they don't need food and they've got some time or they've got some money or they've got some manpower, that they'll come and help out that way as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, can, you know, if they're in need of food, they can go on our website mm-hmm. um, and or on our Facebook, and they we post every week where we'll be with our mobile food pantries. So okay. just go to our Facebook and look us up on Facebook, um, Second Harvest of Coastal Georgia, and then they'll know where we're going to be. We're putting the addresses and the times and everything on there, so that alleviates them having to worry about calling us. They'll know exactly where they can go to get the mobile food pantries. Well, very good. Keep the faith, Mary Jane Crouch. Thanks for all that you do and for all that your folks at America's Second Harvest of Coastal Georgia do for us. And uh, we'll look back to talking to you in brighter times. All right. Well, thanks for uh, calling and talking to us today. We appreciate the support. With that, thanks to Mary Jane Crouch for sharing her story on Difference Makers. Thank you also to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as the Davenport House Museum's Jamie Cradle, Savannah film and ice cream icons Gratton Leopold, and Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post May the 15th. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 